like so many of you, I've been overwhelmed by the images of unspeakable atrocities in Israel and Gaza. I've been experiencing that same powerless feeling I had as we watched Russia invade the Ukraine. Words fail us in in the face of this level of suffering and violence, leaving us with only sighs and groans too deep for words. So it is with heavy hearts I do want to acknowledge that we attend to this morning's biblical story. Let us pray. Gracious God, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O God, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. When I saw that this story from Exodus 32 was up again in the lectionary cycle for today, I was so pleased. As some of you might know, I have loved this story since my college days. It was the first uh, biblical exegesis paper I wrote in college was on this story. And I have preached it before in this pulpit. And believe me, it's worth coming back to. I'm always compelled by the glimpse it gives us of the emotional landscape of God. This is no distant God, emotionally detached, unmoved mover. This God is outraged by the impetuous acts of God's people. God here is at the end of his rope, ready to wipe Uh, clean the slate and start over with Moses. Sounds a little familiar to the Noah story, doesn't it? The day before the atrocities began in Israel and Gaza, I had a lively lunch with um, Rabbi Adam Morris. I had invited him to have lunch to talk about this story with me. Let me add, it's always fun to engage a biblical story with a rabbi Jewish readings of scripture are way more interesting than our Christians. We tend to uh, give antiseptic uh, interpretations of uncomfortable stories or avoid them altogether. Our instinct is to tidy up when when the narrative gets messy or when the God of the text doesn't align with our predetermined understanding of the God in the, in the Bible. The interpreter's challenge, though, is always to try to stay close to the text and to ask, who is this God in this story? So Rabbi Morris and I decided that this story reveals a two-way relationship between God and God's people, a relationship open to hurt. Now, my mentor, the biblical scholar, Walter Brueggemann, says that this story is dangerous because it totally undermines our comfortably settled understandings of this God. It doesn't fit with what we've decided we know about God. So here's the scene. Moses has been on Mount Sinai for 40 days and 40 nights, communing with God. 
The text says the Lord would speak to Moses face to face as one speaks to a friend. God has been writing the law and the commandments on stone tablets for Moses to deliver to the people. So Moses left them in good care with his brother Aaron. But the people are weary, they're desperate, and they're anxious. And history reveals that a weary, desperate, and anxious people are capable of making stupid decisions or worse yet, dangerous decisions to gain control of their futures. The people begin grumbling and crying out against Moses who brought them out of Egypt into the wilderness. They say, Moses' God, not their God, has tricked us. God has led us out here and left us to die. And as a parent, we know, often does, Aaron, Aaron cracks under the pressure of their badgering. And he asks them to bring all their gold earrings, their jewelry to him. And he melts all of it and makes for them a golden calf. We know this story. So the guys in charge say, O Israel, these are your gods who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And the people are so pleased. Now this is a God we can see. This is a God who is fixed that is domesticated, who won't abandon us, and who requires nothing of us. Now Aaron, maybe he's buying time, builds an altar before their shiny new God and declares, tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord our God. The people rise early, lay down their offerings, and they party all day and night. And they party so fervently, the music and the dancing reach the ears of God. And God has had it. After all I've done for you to provide for you. Sound familiar? Ungrateful. What more do you want from me? God says to Moses, Moses, go down. Your people whom you brought up out of Egypt, have, act, have acted rebelliously. They have been quick to turn aside from the way I instructed them. I have seen this people, how stiff-necked they are. Now let me alone so that my wrath might burn hot against them and I may consume them. And of you, Moses, I will make a great nation." Now pay attention to Moses' response to God, this God to whom he speaks as a friend. Excuse me, but why does your wrath burn against your people whom you brought out of Egypt with a great power and mighty hand, I might add? In other words, they're not my people. They're yours. This whole enterprise was not my idea. Right? It's like two parents arguing over that problem child. Your daughter, your son, they take after your side. We've, Tim and I have had those conversations. <laughs> I won't say which kid. <laughs> Moreover, Moses continues in this conversation now playing the shame card. 
Why should the Egyptians say it was with evil intent that God brought them out into the wilderness and killed them? Basically, what will the neighbors say? So turn from your wrath, Moses insists. Change your mind. Remember your servants, Abraham, Isaac, and Israel. How you swore to them by your own self saying, I will multiply your descendants like the stars of the heaven and all this land that I have promised I will give to you. Moses reminds God to be God. Moses reminds God to dig deep to find his best self and to remember the promise God had made to the ancestors. My spiritual mentor in college, a Swedish Lutheran woman, set me on my spiritual journey through the book of Exodus. And she intended for me to meet a God who was not interested in pious, sycophantic submission. She wanted me to encounter the biblical God who is filled with emotion, with compassion, with frustration. The God who is moved by God's people. And I'm not saying God is manipulated by us. I'm suggesting that in freedom, God has allowed God's self to be impacted by all of creation. The one who gave us voices lets us use our voices. And just as loving parents are vulnerable to the needs and desires of their children, God allows God's self to be moved by our needs and our desires. Soren Kierkegaard, the Danish philosopher, said this in a prayer he wrote. The prayer is called, You, Changeless One, Whom Nothing Changes. Kierkegaard says, But everything moves you in infinite love. Even what we human beings call a trifle and unmoved pass by. The sparrows need that moves you. And we so often scarcely pay attention to a human sigh. That moves you, O infinite love. But nothing changes you you changeless one, O oh, you who in infinite love let yourself be moved. How does God respond to Moses? The text says, the Lord changes his mind about the disaster that he planned to bring on his people. God changes God's mind. God changes God's plan. God's despair is softened. I believe his despair was softened and he changed his mind because Moses and God had a loving relationship that was open to hurt. And their relationship allowed for honest conversation. God and Moses had history. They'd been through some stuff together. The burning bush encounter, the frogs, the flies, the locusts, the dramatic escape from Egypt. They'd taken the whiny people through the wilderness together. 
They'd been on the mountaintop for days and nights together. Some pretty major highs and lows, to say the least. Moses knew that God had sealed a covenant with the ancestors and that no matter how despairing God felt, God was bound to the covenant. So in this story, Moses stands in the breach. Moses loves God and he loves the ill-mannered, unfaithful, stiff-necked people carousing down below. And Moses sticks out his neck on their behalf. So this story invites us to stand in the breach for others, for the world, for those we love, for those who depend upon us. I pray that we will be emboldened to speak truth to power like Moses who stood toe-to-toe with the creator of the universe and faced divine despair with a strong voice and a sure heart because despair in isolation and unaddressed can be dangerous even catastrophic and Dr. Brueggemann was right this story feels dangerous being people of faith is not for the fainted faint of heart Standing in the breach means confronting hatred wherever it reveals itself. Praying despair does not turn into danger. Praying anguish does not turn into blind rage. Praying disappointment does not turn into destruction. Pleading that resentment does not turn into violence. And in light of the atrocities that happened last weekend and are still happening in Israel and Gaza, all people of faith, all people of all religions of peace must stand in the breach, praying for the beautiful children of Israel and Gaza. Their suffering deserves our strong voices and our sure hearts. We live in a world where it can feel like all the most consequential decisions are in the hands of powers beyond our reach. And our scriptures, though, tell us otherwise, that our voices and our actions can change the story. Thanks be to God, and thanks be to Moses for paving the way. Amen.